Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. It's our summer reading episode, so we've got some recommendations. Like Silas House of Kentucky, whose latest novel draws on real-life changes in the weather. I hear people in my family verify it. This didn't happen when I was growing up, but at the same time, sort of denying that it's, uh, you know, because of climate change. Virginia author Barbara Kingsolver, winner of the 2023 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. They say that every writer is really writing the same story over and over again. And if that's true, my story is about community. And folklorist Emily Hilliard, whose book has a chapter on West Virginia slaw dogs. The first mention of slaw that I could find was from a 1949 paper. Incarcerated people in the jail liked slaw on their dogs because they could smuggle in a razor blade. (laughs) You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, building on West Virginia's proud history of powering the nation by bringing solar power to the coal fields. More at solarholler.com. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams, and I'm not afraid to admit it. I love books. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing like jumping into a mountain pond or ducking into an air-conditioned movie theater. But there's something particularly special about losing yourself in a book on a summer day. I can remember buying popsicles and comic books at the corner store in Clifton Forge, and sometime later obsessing over Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings. This summer, I'm reading Anne Pancake's Strange as This Weather Has Been and Alison Stein's Trashlands. If you're looking for summer book recommendations, well... We've got you. Let's start with a post-apocalyptic story that's also about the ravages of climate change. It's full of rich, vivid writing about the natural world and our inner lives, too. The book is Lark Ascending by Kentucky author Silas House. It came out last year and won the 2023 Southern Book Prize and the 2023 Nautilus Book Award. Then in April, House was named Kentucky Poet Laureate. Last fall, I spoke with House about Lark Ascending. Silas House, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia to speak with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Lark Ascending is a a gripping novel. I understand you were in Heinemann in late July when the floods hit. So you hear you have this book about a climate-changed world, and you're experiencing the the effects of it firsthand there in Kentucky. What, What was that like? Well, I was on my way to the Appalachian Writers Workshop at Hyman, which was sort of the epicenter of the flooding. So I wasn't there, but I I was there after the floods hit and worked in some of the flood relief. And I think, you know, a whole lot of people realized climate change has come to us and it's undeniable. In in that particular flood, it was just um so quick. And the rain was so violent, it was. It's just undeniable that it's something new. Uh, it's something you know that we didn't experience in our childhoods. It's different. Um, it's here, you know. What's your sense of how people in Appalachia feel about climate change? It, it seems like it's still politicized, but at the same time, you know, people see the weather, and even if they don't believe it's man-made, they see the effects in the coal industry and the gas industry. What's your sense of of where Appalachia is on climate change at the moment? Well, that's an interesting question because it makes me think of growing up, you know, how important the weather was. Everyone commented on the weather all the time. And so I do hear a lot of people say the weather's different. The weather has changed. But I also hear those same people sort of have been convinced by so many talking heads that climate change is not a real thing. So it's like on one hand, I hear people in my family verify it, (laughs) you know, by saying this didn't happen when I was growing up, but at the same time sort of denying that it's, uh, you know, because of climate change. So I think, you know, the, there's so much bad information out there and sort of one of the best things about the internet is, how much information it gives us, and also the worst thing about the internet is how much information it gives us. 
tell me a little bit how you conceived this story and then and then wrote it. Well, the family who is at the center of this book are um, they're from the West Virginia Maryland border. They live in a very small town right there. The climate change has fueled ferocious forest fires that are spreading from the west. At the beginning of their story, they have to leave Appalachia, um, central Appalachia, and actually going up into Maine. And then from Maine, they go to Nova Scotia, then across the Atlantic, and finally to Ireland. So they're making this sort of epic journey out of Appalachia and across the sea to to what so many people think of as as a homeland of Appalachia. You know, when I think of contemporary Appalachia, I think that you just can't deny our culture is such a a tangled knot of uh, Native American, African, and Scots-Irish influences. All three of those cultures have come together to make the Appalachian culture, to my mind. And so in a way, this family's sort of making a reverse journey. So I do think of it as sort of a global Appalachian story. And I also think, you know, to go back to the flooding, a, a lot of people have talked about Appalachia as a refuge when climate change, you know, goes into higher gear. But in fact, I think Appalachian people are going to suffer greatly at, at the hands of climate change. And a lot of that has to do with the way that, you know, it's been treated as a sacrificial ground for over a century uh, by the rest of the country, the rest of the world, the way that has changed our topography, our drainage, our aquifers, etc. So I just don't think you can separate Appalachia from climate change and climate refugees, which is something we're going to be talking more and more about. So I was thinking about all those things when I was writing the book and, and how we have to be thinking about those things. We don't have any choice now. One of the things that strikes me about Lark Ascending that is very quintessentially Appalachian is the way in which you write these moments of joy into what is otherwise a dystopian story. Like there's one scene where Helen finds sardines in a canteen and red and purple socks. And the characters that are talking about are so excited and joyful about that. And then another section they're, they're describing how birds move and as and the passage of evening to night would you mind reading that uh excerpt from the from the novel where they're discussing that we walked into the purpling of evening the gloaming helen announced and i wondered how the world had known in all this time to start its way toward night time without helen around to speak it into being why do you call it that i asked her she was balancing herself with her arms out as we crossed a jagged line of stones across a quickening stream. What would you have me say instead? Dusk, twilight, I answered, watching the cliffs above us. I was always more nervous around rushing water like this because it limited what we could hear of the rest of the world. But the word gloaming is so much lovelier, she said, as if that was that, the end. Tall pines loomed all around us fragrant with sweetness, and then we came into a clearing where we could see the silhouette of mountains against the darkening sky. I should think we're two days' walk from Glendalough, Helen said, more to herself than me. Several starlings rose from an ash tree atop the wooded hill before us. At least a hundred fluttered skyward. They all moved together, as if they could predict each other's movement. They swooped down and up, and in a spiral movement, an undulation, Dozens of birds moving as if they were of one mind. I had seen this happen before, but it always felt like a kind of magic. A murmuration, Helen breathed out. Yeah, I just, I'm struck by that mix of, of joy, even within a dystopia. Can you talk about that aspect of the novel a little bit and how it reflects Appalachia? Well, I'm so glad you asked that because, you know, anytime you're writing a book that has an issue at its core, no reader will really care about that unless you create a human story that grows out of that issue. And so this is not a book, you know, where you're constantly being harangued about climate change or the demise of democracy or things like that. 
but it is a book in which the characters have been affected by those things. But the most important part is the human story. You know, you have to create characters that readers care about. And I hope that I've done that in this book. But it is a book about grief. To me, that's the central theme. It's about grieving the loss of someone you love. It's about grieving the loss of your country. It's about grieving the loss of normalcy. To sustain myself and the reader for almost 300 pages, I have to have these moments of joy and wonder um, and beauty throughout the book. And really, that's how we get through grief. You know, the only way you can get through the darkness of grief is to recognize these moments of beauty and joy and wonder. And one way I'm able to do that in the book is that one of the main characters is a dog. And so, you know, as far as we know, dogs are not aware of their mortality. The dog is not aware that it's walking through an apocalyptic landscape, you know, and so the dog is able to hold on to this joy and this hope in a way that the humans cannot. And so some of the chapters are from the point of view of the dog. And, you know, one of his great joys is, is olfactory. It's all about <laughs> what he's smelling. And so I had to latch on so much to scent in this book. And when you're, you know, spending years writing a book and you're thinking a lot about just the sensation of scent, it does make you think more about that sense of wonder and joy and um, those little moments of joy that really carry us through the darkness. Yeah. And it's interesting. You mentioned Seamus and Lark. Seamus is the dog, but that is the one, one of the few relationships in Lark ascending that is completely trustworthy. There's no doubting. There's no distrust. And that seems like a theme too. You know, there's a, there's a part where Helen, um, one of the characters tells Lark, don't go trusting everyone, Lark. But if we can't trust a few people in this world, then there's no point at all. It's one of the things that gets us through. And that seems like a particularly resonant message in this time we live in, where there's so much division and distrust and polarization between people, even neighbors. What is that, what is that, that quote and that consideration of trust and relationships and Lark Ascending have to tell us about today? in our life in Appalachia and the U S today. Well, I, I'm afraid it just reveals more about me than anything else. And the older I get, the smaller my circle becomes, you know, and I think the, the fewer people that I truly trust. Um, and I just think that's a lesson of aging that, you know, you, you sort of gather in your, true friends and your true family and you depend more on them and it's it's really easy to understand those loyalties in a much deeper way uh, you know I, I turned 50 while I was writing this book and I think that shaped a lot of my point of view on those things um, but at the same time I was thinking about you know if you are a person who has lost everything and everybody I mean Lark has lost every person he's ever loved and in the book, he's trying to create a family for himself in the form of this dog, Seamus, and the mysterious Irish woman, Helen. And so, you know, he has to be very careful in creating this family. And one of the themes that runs through all of my work is the idea of created family. As a gay person, you know, that's been a cornerstone of my life. You have to have not only a blood family, but a found family or a created family. Um, and I think that's commentary on that, you know, that a, a lot of the times this sort of found family is, is immediate. It's in, very instinctual. Um, and so you have to really hone your trust instincts in that way. So that's what Lark is doing in the book. Silas House, it's been wonderful th having you on Inside Appalachia. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us. Thank you so much for reading the book. I appreciate it. That was Kentucky writer Silas House. The novel is Lark Ascending.
you pick up a novel and it's won the Pulitzer Prize, you can rest assured it's a solid read. Well, two Appalachian books have won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. A Death in the Family by James Agee, which came out in 1958. And then, as of this year, there's Demon Copperhead by Virginia author Barbara Kingsolver. Last year, Kingsolver was Appalachian Heritage Writer-in-Residence at Shepherd University in West Virginia. While she was there, WVPB's Liz McCormick sat down with her to talk about Demon Copperhead. What does it mean to be an Appalachian in your own experiences and your own words? To me, it means home. It means recognizing and celebrating my own people. I grew up in the eastern part of Kentucky. I left my little rural town, as young people do. I lived all over the place on several continents doing, you know, low-paying jobs. And as I traveled the world and this country especially, I encountered a lot of shocking stereotypes, a lot of condescension. That made me mad. It still makes me mad. After trying out a lot of different places, I came back home to Appalachia. I now live on the other side of the mountains in southwest Virginia, but it's the same culture. It's the same language. It's the same um, emphasis on community and resourcefulness and kindness that I grew up knowing and loving. So as a writer, I see it as sort of my mission to represent us in a way that is seldom seen and seldom understood outside of Appalachia. So, Barbara, you've written a lot of diverse stories, uh, ranging from novels, short stories, poetry. Some of these stories take us all over the world. What sort of impact do, do your roots, your Appalachian roots, play in your writing? You know, with the Poisonwood Bible, it took place in the Congo. How does your background and uh, roots here in Appalachia impact your writing? You know, they say that every writer is really writing the same story over and over again. And if that's true, my story is about community. If I really examine all my works, even though they do, I work hard to make each one entirely new, not just a new place and set of characters, but asking a whole new question. I've written about climate change and why that's so hard for us to talk about. I've written, as you said, a book set in the Congo, which is about cultural arrogance and how, you know, what one nation will do to another. So these are big, big questions, sort of urgent modern themes. But if you sort of dig down into the heart of every one of these stories, it's about community. What is our duty to our community? How do we belong to it? How does it belong to us? And how does that play against the really powerful American iconography of the individual, the solo flyer, you know, the lone hero? That's supposed to be the American story. But as a woman and as an Appalachian woman, I I always see like all the other people behind the solo flyer, you know, the people who gassed up his airplane, the women who packed his lunch, you know, I mean, there's, there is no such thing as a lone hero. I'm interested in the heroism of people who think they're ordinary, and people who are helping each other, creating families for each other or, or safe safety networks for each other who are aware of their indebtedness to their neighbors and their people. Barbara, I understand that you've had a book hit bookshelves, a brand new book, and that is Demon Copperhead. I want to ask you to talk with us about this book and what can readers expect when they read this? Readers can expect a page turner. I live in deep, deep southwest Virginia, which is the epicenter of the opioid epidemic. So we are living with this. And I wanted for several years to write about it, and I couldn't think of a good way in that would make this story interesting and, and you know, appealing to, to people, to readers, because it's, it's a hard subject. It's dark. It's difficult. Kids, you know, kids coming up in this, this environment. And then I, I sort of had a, had a conversation with Charles Dickens, and I realized the way to tell the story is the way he told David Copperfield, let the child tell the story. 
that's what I realized I needed to do. So this kid who's called Copperhead because he has red hair. He has Melungeon heritage, if people know what that is. And he's the child of a teenage drug-using mother. He's born actually on the floor of her single-wide trailer home. And he comes into the world with this fierce, if a newborn can have an attitude, demon has it. He tells you his story from his point of view, mostly taking place in his teens and early 20s as OxyContin is, is released into Lee County, where he lives. But he tells this story in a way that, uh, in his own voice, in a way that will just give the reader a reason to turn every page because you need to know how he's going to come through this how he's going to survive because he is a survivor. He's funny, he's fierce, and he's passionate. That was award-winning author Barbara Kingsolver. The novel is Demon Copperhead. To hear an extended version of this conversation, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, we talk with Kentucky poet Frank X. Walker about his latest children's book and the roots of the Afrolatchian movement. In my dictionary in 1991, The definition of Appalachia said white residents of the mountainous regions of Appalachia. And it shook me because I immediately thought, well, well, what are you if you aren't white? You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. Thirty years ago, Kentucky poet Frank X. Walker heard Appalachians defined as, quote, the white residents of the Appalachian Mountains. That experience prompted Walker to coin the phrase Afrolatcha and co-found a group of black writers who represent the region. Now he's got a children's book. It's called A is for Afrolatcha. The book has been described as an ode to Afrolatcha for how it paints a portrait of black life in the region. WVPB's Eric Douglas spoke with Walker about the book. Eric started by acknowledging his own challenges trying to get into poetry. I'm no no stranger to literary pursuits, but I struggle with poetry. As a person who admits that they can't, that they struggle with poetry, help me. Tell me what I'm missing or or tell me what I need to know that'll make it clearer for me. Well, I don't know if I can make it clear. I can make you feel uh, less responsible. You know, I, I think the challenge of poetry is that a lot of other people and not all poets uh, have given poetry a bad reputation uh, because of the way it was taught in schools. If, if, if your first introduction to poetry is through a Shakespearean sonnet and you're 15 years old and everything about Elizabethan England is so, it's so far away from your world, uh, versus your family and where you live and how you live and, and your diction and your language uh, and your culture and your music, if none of that is in poetry when it's introduced to you, why would it not feel like a foreign concept? Poetry, I wanna write poems that my grandmother might enjoy. Even my father with an eighth grade education, that, that he would hear these words and not have to run to a dictionary or feel left out or even be, mystified by the fact that he doesn't recognize the people being talked about, the places being talked about. But if he, hear, if he hears that work and it's in the form of a poem and it sounds just like some of his favorite music on the radio without the music, then he's not lost. You know, I think if you think of poetry uh, as a cousin to, to say country music or the blues and you get this and you enjoy those two art forms and you can enjoy poetry and the only difference 
might be the subject matter. Explain to me the genesis of roots of Afrolatcha. Uh, you're credited with coining that term, uh, but also the Afrolatchian poets. And, and where did all that start? Right here in Lexington, um, about 1991, I had a group of friends who were meeting once a week, sharing our brand new poetry only with each other. And we also started to, to go to public events. And we went to an event uh, that was credited with being showcasing the best uh, writers from Appalachia. And, you know, we all enjoyed the event. And I came home and I looked up the definition of Appalachia. Uh, and in my dictionary in 1991, the definition of Appalachia said white residents of the mountainous regions of Appalachia. Mm. And it shook me because I immediately thought, well, well, what are you if you aren't white? If it's just based on the proximity to those mountains. And uh, so I, I wrote a poem that, that kind of teased out that question at the very end of the poem. I, I wrote the line, imagine being an Afro-Latin poet. And I brought it back to my group the next week to share. And I fell in love with the word. Uh, and decided the same evening to name ourselves. We'd been meeting for about a year, unnamed, and not even thinking of ourselves as a group. But we decided at that moment that there was something about the word that was electric enough to make us feel something. And so we named ourselves the Afrolatian Poets. And about 10 years later, the dictionary, you know, based on the amount of use that was happening with the word in the region, uh, picked it up and decided it was a, a legitimate word. Why was it important for you to develop a children's book? When you consider luminaries like Booker T. Washington and even the John Henry stories or Henry Louis Gates, uh, you know, Nina Simone, Roberta Flack, Bill Withers, they're always discussed separate from the space they come from. People almost never connect them to, to the region of Appalachia. Um, so what I wanted to do was, was do a children's book that also educated the people reading to those children, because most of the stuff in the book, the children who might read these books, their parents don't know this information either. One of the most important parts of the book is the glossary, the five pages of glossary that comes at the end of the, the alphabet, and it gives you a brief history of all the significant figures and places uh, and people that make up uh, what I consider Afrolatia. Who do you want to read the book? Grandmothers, parents, high school students, middle school students, uh, you know, young people who are literate enough to read on their own, uh, and even people who just enjoy beautiful images to, to flip through the book and enjoy the images uh, and then ask questions of whoever's there with you. You know, I think, I hope it's a, a multi-generational experience, you know, Every family should own one of these books, in my opinion. Frank X. Walker is a professor at the University of Kentucky. His most recent book is A is for Appalachia. You know, nonfiction books prove that real life can be every bit as colorful as fiction. Take the book Making Our Future, Visionary Folklore and Everyday Culture in Appalachia by folklorist Emily Hilliard. It's every chapter contains bright descriptions of, well, quirky Appalachian culture, like indie pro wrestling and the sprawling online world of Fallout 76. Folkways reporter and resident foodie Zach Harold spoke with Hilliard about the book when it was published last year. Emily Hilliard, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about uh, this uh, amazing new book of yours. Thanks so much, Zach. Well, there, there's so much that we could cover. I would like to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, your chapter on hot dogs. Can you tell me about kind of how the craze began? Well, it's kind of linked to industry and immigration and popularization of mass culture, uh, urbanization, and European migration. Um, so there were a lot of instances where... Um, Basically, Greek and maybe Italian immigrants were setting up hot dog stands in West Virginia 
Um, and mostly that was in major urban centers in industrial areas. And I think that's why we see the hot dog really being popular in West Virginia in the southern coal fields, the northern coal fields, and then industrial cities like, um, you know, the Ohio River towns of Huntington and Parkersburg. But hot dogs really seemed to boom in the 1910s and 1920s in West Virginia. I love the line in the book uh, from a Fairmont newspaper that calls Charleston, quote, one of the greatest places on earth for hot dog eaters. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That was amazing to find. Um, I found this, um, well, I guess it was several articles um, about hot dogs in Charleston, and I found there there were at least um, four hot dog stands in Charleston in the early 1920s, and three of four of them were owned by Greek immigrants. And there was this amazing stat in one of the articles. It said that 22,000 dogs a day were sold out of those four hot dog stands at one point. And that is about one for every two residents in Charleston at the time. And then uh, I have this highlighted in my copy. They describe it in a very evocative way, right? Like to, to help people conceptualize how many hot dogs that is. If all the hot dogs consumed in a year in Charleston were strung together, the string could extend to Huntington and back and still have enough left to run down to St. Albans on the one side of the road and back on the other. <laughs> yeah, and then I think it goes on to say, or it could go all the way to Morgantown. And to return to to your point, I found it interesting that it was so tied to industry. Because this, I mean, it's cheap, it's portable, right? This is the perfect thing for, for people who are, you know, doing shift work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I talked to the descendants of A.J. Valos, um, who was a Greek immigrant born in 1894, and he had actually worked as an indentured servant in the hot dog industry in New York, and then moved to Parkersburg and opened the Broadway Sandwich Shop, which is still open. Um, He opened that in 1939, and his relatives were saying that they thought that much of the success of his shop was because it was right across the street from the Mountain State Steel Foundries. And it was also close to a high school. So they got students from um, the school coming for a snack or for a meal. And then there were some other um, companies right nearby too. So factory workers would grab hot dogs, um, you know, before or after a shift. Reading that section about the Broadway sandwich shop in Parkersburg. I've eaten there. I've had hot dogs there and had no idea of this history of it. That's that's what I love about this book is that it, it does. It really takes things that you think you know and, and explores the story behind it. Let's talk about the, the hot dog stand war of 1922 in Fairmont. This was also something I found through looking through historic newspapers. Um... But there was this flurry of activity in the Fairmont Papers in 1922. City officials were upset with the clientele that uh, these hot dog stands in Fairmont were attracting. And um, most of that is, you know, seems like racist and classist um, resentment of the immigrant um you know, Greek and Italian immigrants who were running these hot dog stands and wagons, and then also the clientele of high school students and workers. Um, And they kind of equate them with like dive bars and beer joints and attest that they are unsavory and um, kind of try to shut down some of these joints. And then there's sort of the counter response of Um, someone writing in and saying maybe the city officials could worry about more important things than just shutting down hot dog stands. Um, And then there's another uh, newsstand owner who writes in and he is um, incensed that uh, because people had been thinking his newsstand was a hot dog stand and he writes into the paper to assert that that is simply not true and I don't want to be affiliated with that kind (laughs) of base business. Uh, so first comes the hot dog, and then comes the West Virginia hot dog, right? 
and you get into that history a little bit, which which seems a little murky, right? Like, when did we start putting slaw on dogs? The first mention of slaw that I could find was from a 1949 paper um, in Raleigh County, and it was about um, the jail. Incarcerated people in the jail liked slaw on their dogs because they could smuggle in a razor blade in the slaw. And, I mean, that is... You know, that is another instance where it's like, is this um, is this kind of a joke column? Um, and there, I think there was a little bit of humor to it, um, but it is kind of funny to think in this imaginary where um, that is why people started putting slaw on hot dogs. Um, but, you know, Stanton from the West Virginia Hot Dog blog um, credits a stop at... Um, advertisement in the paper from 1922 that says something like everyone's talking about the Stoppets uh, new dog with slaw. So it may have been um, popular in the state before that. Um, we just don't know. But there were, you know, traditions of coleslaw and cabbage, um, definitely with German immigrants and Eastern European immigrants um, who, you know, were living in West Virginia at the time. I don't think I'll ever uh, look at a hot dog the same way again. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully that doesn't mean that you won't still enjoy it. I love them even more. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> You've published a book. Authors have to do a certain amount of uh, you know, self-promotion out there, uh, telling people about the book coming out, letting them know they can pre-order it. You ran into a little bit of controversy <laughs> on social media uh, over hot dogs. Uh, can you tell me what happened? Yeah, well, I posted um, a map that uh, my friend Dan Davis from Kinship Goods made for the book, and it's of the hot dog joints that are included in the book, most of them, but not all of them. And I think maybe people just didn't read that that's what it was for, and... Um, yeah, it, it went, I would say, it wasn't quite viral, but it had hundreds of retweets and responses. And people were just so mad that their favorite hot dog joint was not on this map. And But I ended up, you know, issuing a disclaimer and saying, um, this is not a value statement of the best hot dog joints. It's simply the hot dog joints, some of them that are listed in the book. And... Um, you know, it's not, it's not um, exhaustive by any means, and neither is the book. Um, but I would love to see your hot dog map, which I'm serious about. Um, I would love to see, um, you know, a collection of people's, you know, their favorite hot dog joints in West Virginia um, or the ones where they have memories. You know, I would love to see this collection of hot dog maps. And I think uh, Dan is making some merch for it, too, which might inspire more controversy, but hopefully not. <laughs> or maybe hopefully so, because like you said, like, if we generate enough controversy, this will lead to the creation of rival hot dog maps. And then we just have a whole nother. That's a whole nother chapter in your next book. Totally. Yeah, that would be fun. Emily, I, I just want to say, I feel like the state of West Virginia owes you a profound debt of gratitude for the work and love that you've put into this book. Whether we're talking about your chapter on hot dogs like we have today, or your chapter on the author Brie DJ Pancake, or the chapter on the teacher's strike, or the one on independent pro wrestling, what we've ended up with is a book that you could put in somebody's hands and say, this is why. West Virginia is special. This is what makes us who we are. And I'm just so glad that you've given that to us. I, I really appreciate that. And this is sort of a, in a way, it's a love letter back to the state in all its complexity, I hope. My baby works in a hot dog stand, making them hot dogs as fast as you can. Up steps of cat hills, don't be slow. Making Our Future, Visionary Folklore and Everyday Culture in Appalachia is published by the University of North Carolina Press. That interview was part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To hear it again, or any of our other 130-plus Folkways stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. It's always nice to have a book of poetry in your summer reading mix. We suggest 
any of the eight volumes of Women Speak, an anthology that collects the work of Appalachian women. It's edited by Carrie Gunter Seymour. Gunter Seymour is also Ohio's Poet Laureate. Producer Bill Lynch spoke with her about poetry, getting published in Appalachian, Ohio. I just want to I just want to preface this with saying you know a lot of people don't realize that a quarter of the state of Ohio rests in Appalachia proper and that there are pockets of Appalachians scattered throughout the state that are still adamantly connected with their Appalachian roots. We just happened to, you know, our people migrated during the Great Depression and uh, World War II. You know, even though many of us live in Northern Appalachia, a, a good many of us have strong Southern roots as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've, we've kind of adapted to Northern ways based on the landscape and the, the growing seasons, you know, what the land provides by way of, um, you know, the quality of the soil and the weather and the Lord and all those things that are so important, you know, to um, to growing and maintaining. But we all take great pride in our Appalachian uh, heritage and our people. And I write a lot about my people. But this particular poem is, is about all of that. It's about the land and the people and this false impression that people have of Appalachians that we're all just kind of lazy and uh, don't work hard enough and um, could do so much better. And I think we're doing great. So this is called uh, To No One in Particular. I'm never happy to see summer go, earth stripped of its finest voice. I'm sitting outside in my heavy coat, porch light off. There is a full on moon. No ambient distractions. The sky a Zion. I take solace in considering the age of this valley. The way water left its mark on Appalachia long before Peabody sunk a shaft. Chevron augured the shale. Or ODOT dynamited roadways through steep rock. I grew up in a house where canned fruit cocktail was considered a treat. My sister and I fought over who got to eat the fake cherries. Standouts in the can, though tasting exactly like every other tired piece of fruit floating in the heavy syrup. But it was store-bought, like city folks. And we were too gullible to understand the corruption in the concept. Our mother's home canned harvests superior in every way. I cringe when I think of how we shamed her. So much here depends upon a green corn stalk, a patched barn roof, weather, the Lord, community. We've rarely been offered a hand that didn't destroy. Inside the house, the light bulb comes on when the refrigerator door is open. My husband rummages a snack, plops beside me on the porch to wolf it down, turns, plants a kiss, leans back in his chair, says to no one in particular, A person could spend a lifetime under a sky such as this. Stands, bows, offers his hand, sings. Buffalo gal, won't you come out tonight? Come out tonight. Come out tonight. Come and dance with a man with a hole in a stocking his knees are a knocking but his feet keep rocking come dance with a man with a hole in a stocking we'll dance by the light of the moon let us dance by the light of the moon (laughs) (laughs) i love that that's my little protest poem <laughs> parts that reminded my my childhood right away with the, like with the canned fruit and remembering that with my sisters and and it, yeah we would 
I think I was more into the pineapple pieces, but yeah, it, it all did taste the same. And it was like a big treat and it was just canned. Yeah, that's wonderful. Poet Laureate, how did you get to here where you are now? I didn't start writing poetry until 2009. I had begun journaling. I had a, a life altering circumstance that I was trying to get through. And we talked earlier about the, um, you know, the athletics and getting, getting uh, pretty crazy about the workouts. And I, it was all trying to deal with anxiety. And I started journaling and started sharing some of my thoughts with people as I would, you know, try to get out and listen to others who were writing and talking about um, the same kind of situation. And someone said to me, you ought, you ought to try writing poetry because it will make you focus in tightly, you know, because in poetry, you try to look at every single word and find the perfect word, every single word, because you're using a lot less words. So they need to be pretty perfect. And that was life altering for me because it really did. It helped me deal with my chaos. Um, it did help me focus in. It did make me think more clearly about things and less irrationally. And so I felt like it was so therapeutic and so healing. And so then I, I got kind of obsessed with that the way I had about, you know, uh, working out. So between the two of them, the working out and the poetry, I felt like I got my life back into control. Though I will tell you those early poems were pretty horrible. <laughs> but I just kept going and I kept reading other poets and I kept attending um, readings. I did some workshops. I certainly don't profess to be one of the best poets on the planet or anything like that. But I do love poetry and I love uh, people and I love helping other people. And so um, I was the poet laureate of Athens County, Athens, Ohio, uh, when the call came out on the state level. And there were several really good, wonderful folks who encouraged me to throw my hat in the ring, so to speak. And they nominated me. And then through the process of the submission process and the interview process, then I, I do believe there were three to five of us packaged up, you know, on paper, Mm -hmm. and sent to our governor, Governor DeWine, and De uh, Governor DeWine made the final choice. Uh, what was it like the first time you were published? Oh, oh, you know, I tell people, please don't write your work with the idea of getting published, because I think sometimes we stray from the healing and the therapy of poetry when we're trying to write something that, that an editor might like and might want to publish. That said... <laughs> The first time you get published, I don't think there's anything like it. It is the most amazing feeling to, um, it's a validation of sorts, you know, and you really don't want it to be that way, but it is, it really is. And for me to top it all off, my very first publication was with Still the Journal, which is to me the finest Appalachian journal on the planet. <laughs> And to have been um, accepted there in the very early days um, of my journey as a poet is just, there's almost not words to explain it. I hope you can hear in my voice how excited I am uh, to occasionally appear in that marvelous, wonderful uh, journal. And the folks there work so hard to lift up new voices and um and those voices who they feel represent the region. And so, yeah, it was, it was something. Carrie, thank you so much. Oh, it was so nice to meet you, Bill. And thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm just so honored and thrilled. The poetry series is called Women Speak. The newest volume features a piece by another of our favorite authors, Nima Avashia. The Women of Appalachia Project is accepting submissions for its next edition, June 29th and 30th. For details, visit our website. We hope you found something from this episode to add to your summer reading list. I'm going back to finally finish a book I started years ago called If Trouble Don't Kill Me. It's a bit of family history by Western Virginia writer Ralph Barrier about his grandfather and great-uncle, who became a famous brother music duo in the 1930s and 40s, until they were sent off to fight in World War II. What are you reading this summer? Maybe a cool mystery or biography? Or maybe some cryptid fanfic? Let us know. 
by emailing us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Maybe we'll feature it in next year's episode. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Del McCurry, The Appalachian Roadshow, Little Sparrow, Buck Owens, and Tim Bing. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.